what do you need me for today? <laughs> there's, your, there's your sermon right there. Amen. Wow. Hey, listen, before we, before we jump, into the, jump into God's Word, I want to offer you a copy of God's Word. We do this, I don't know, every year or so. You have to forgive me. I wanted to do this last week when we talked about prophecy and we talked about the power of Scripture. God's Word has so many uh, self-analogies that it provides that this is a hammer that smashes the rock to pieces. This is a fire that purifies. It's the milk that nourishes. It's the sword that penetrates and lays us open, a surgical sword, not a sword of execution. Praise God for that, right? Um, and I know there's so many apps today that are available and on your tablet and smartphones and iPhones and Androids and all that. Uh, and that's great. Praise God that technology can serve our, our, our need and our desire to, to build spiritual disciplines and habits in our life. And I also know at the same time that sometimes those things can be a distraction, and it's good to have paper and ink uh, and a book in your hand. And this is a really handsome Bible, use that word. It's black. It's the ESV uh, translation we use here, English Standard Version, and it's just about as close as you can get from Greek and Hebrew to English uh, and still preserve the integrity of, of cohesive thought, you know, in another culture, another time, another language. So all that to say, we have a whole box full of these in the back, and uh, maybe we'll do Christmas a couple of weeks early today. Uh, if you need a copy of God's Word, or if you know somebody, God's brought somebody to mind right now that you would love to offer this, maybe a neighbor, a friend, a family member, Christian or non-Christian, maybe they've wandered and you think, you know, I'd love to put a handsome black uh, ESV Bible in their hands. Uh, Steve's back there. Just put your hand in the air if you, if you want, or you can go back there and get one, or you can wait until after the service. I don't know how many we have, Steve, probably 40 or 50 or so. Um, please don't leave here. If you want a copy of God's Word, please don't leave here without one, or you can come and take this one from up here uh, when we're finished here. I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into the Scripture today. It's going to be Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we're going to read about 20 or 21 verses there, but I want to pray first and uh, just settle our hearts. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the testimony we heard from Aaron. God, you are uh, the God who can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. You are a God of renewal and restoration and transformation and revival, and uh, you bring to life, Lord, what appears to be dead and, and lifeless and gone, too far gone, Lord, to, to resuscitate and yet you transform it. The, the, the thorn bush grows up into a, a myrtle tree or a cypress, Lord. You, you transform things from the inside out. We can't do that. You can do that, and you still do it today, as Aaron's testimony bears witness. Thank you for that, that reminder. Thank you for trophies of grace all throughout this congregation that could stand up and bear similar testimony. Lord, I pray today... As we're thinking about this time of the year, we're thinking about Advent, the arrival of somebody noteworthy. We're thinking about the Incarnation. We're thinking about Emmanuel, which is God with us, which is a miracle in and of itself, a holy and a just God being amongst fallen, idolatrous, uh, rebellious, sinful creatures. How in the world can that happen? It happened through Christ. And I pray as we celebrate this and reflect on this the next few weeks, you would do something transformative in our hearts, Lord. Help us to pay attention. Help us to do what we read that Mary did in this passage, Lord. Ponder these things in her heart and treasure them, relish them, turn them over, follow them through, uh, 
and understand them and, and believe them and build her life on them. May we do that, God. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you can turn or scroll to Luke chapter 2. And this is, I know, a familiar story to, to many, if not all of you. And welcome for those of you watching from home as well. You can follow along. We'll have the PowerPoint up here with this passage. I know this is a really familiar story, and it brings up all kinds of sentimental feelings of nostalgia. And that's fine. That's good. That's, sometimes that's God's gift to help us. Uh, but oftentimes we miss things that are, in, that are hiding in plain sight. I wanted to use the title, Hidden, Hidden Message of Christmas, but I don't I want to reject that because so often we hear the Bible has all these hidden codes that only experts can decipher, and that's a lie. I don't believe that. Uh, God's not hiding anything from us. Um, But it can be true that when you read a passage like this, we get so lost in the familiar that we miss things. So I've titled this message instead, um, The Missing Message of Christmas. So I'm going to read this out loud. You can follow along. And maybe ask that God would open your heart to showing you something new and something powerful that you haven't seen before. You know, God's Word has so much, it's so versatile. It has so many ways that it can intersect with our lives and encourage us in a new and fresh way, challenge us, convict us, liberate us, and equip us. So I pray that that's the case today. A familiar story, Luke chapter 2. Let's read it together. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Verse 6, and while they were there, The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. Verse 8, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Jerusalem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Verse 16, and they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it 
wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, verse 21, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The missing message of Christmas. The missing message of Christmas. Well, today I have three points to give, and then we'll be on our way. Um, Point number one is God values the unimpressive. And man, this is going to be the longest point. Just to give you a heads up, not all points are created equal in time or in quality. This is going to be the long point because I think, you know what I've told you I've tried to do, I'm not really a, a liturgical pastor, which means I, I go by a, a religious calendar. Uh, maybe it's the re- deep-seated rebellion in me. <laughs> Anybody imposing on me something, hey, you have to preach on this now and you have to preach on that. Of course, we do Easter and I try to, to do an advent of some kind, but uh, I found this is our eighth year and when there's four messages for Advent every year, the 32nd Christmas message you do, I want to be fresh. I don't want you guys to think I reheat my sermons in a microwave. You know, that's boring. That's, that's, that's vanilla. That's generic. I don't want to do that. I want to pray. And I have all week. I've wrestled. My wife will tell you, man, I have wrestled. I want these messages to be powerful and dynamic and fresh. Um, and so I'm, I may not concentrate on what stands out to you is obvious in this passage, but I promise you we have in the past, and all those messages are online. Uh, but today I'm going to focus on what, what God is, what stood out to me in this passage. So point number one is God values the unimpressive, and I hope and I pray that encourages you. Man, it does me, because I'm not an impressive person. I don't really believe I have an impressive life measured by the standards that we use here in the West. And to be honest, this is not a very impressive church uh, using the same standards. You know, 90% of churches are 200 uh, people are below attend those churches. And they don't, you know, the leaders of those churches aren't, aren't going to be platform at conferences. Not, look, I'm not angry or bitter or sad about this. That's just the way that it is, right? So many times we see things that, are, that have to be spec- spectacular are sensational for us to think that it's anything noteworthy or worth our time, right? And Christmas, to me, is a reminder uh, that God values the small, oftentimes the obscure, the forgotten, the marginalized, which, by the way, oh, happens to be most of us, right? And what we do in life in the grand scheme of things. So that's point one. No, I'm not done. I'm just giving you the synopsis. God values the unimpressive, and by the way, we should too. We should too. Point two, peace comes from beyond. Peace comes from out there. there. There's a heavenly, it, it's funny, man. In the Greek, it says, uh, a ho- an, it's a military term, a host of angels. Like there's this army of angelic hosts that come to announce peace. <laughs> you would think, war, it's over, you've had it, which is why the shepherds are trembling in their sandals, right? They're shaking. But he says, hey, don't be afraid. I bring good news. This is not bad news, bro. This is good news. And the good news is that God is bringing peace. You guys have been at it for thousands of years. How are you doing with that? How's that working for you? Not good. The world is as dark and bloody and violent and sad as it's ever been. And God said, enough. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to usher in peace. And it won't be a system. It won't be a philosophy. It won't be a politician. It won't even be a religion. It'll be a person, the Prince of Peace. I'm going to send him, and he'll bring peace from heaven. Because there's nothing you can do down here to create peace on your own terms. You've already tried that. 
So that's point two. Peace comes from beyond. And point number three, the Christmas message that is often missing, missing especially in malls and, and uh, on the radio waves, we, we especially hear sentimental messages and it gets lost in the lights and the Hallmark and the, the Hallmark Christmas movies and, and ain't nothing against them, man. Binge on those till the, till the cows come home if that's your thing. But here's what you probably won't hear or see or experience in all that. The real message that Jesus is Lord. Unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the politician. No. <laughs> Christ the Lord, kurios in Greek. It means a ruler, a king. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over all. That's the message of Christmas. And it's often missing. But it should be front and center. That God sent Christ his king. We were made for a king. And listen, we're going to crown somebody or something king in our life. And it's usually going to be something that has a plastic broken crown to it. And it's not helping us at all. So those are the three points we'll jump into. Number one, God values the unimpressive. And I I have found that as I'm reading this passage again this year as I do every year, something really stood out to me, the stark contrast that we see. And, And you can check it out here in verse 1. Of chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus. This is Octavius, Gaius, Caesar. The word Caesar uh, Augustus actually means exalted one. He was called Lord in those days. And he's a mover and a shaker, man, on the chessboard of power players. Caesar's at the top. He's the curios of that day. He's powerful. And like all the Caesars, he's ruthless. He's irrational. He's unpredictable. Those Gentile rulers in those days in the West, man, they were loco. They were crazy. Seriously, that's why we read, I think last week, um, Herod heard that a king had been born. And, and it says he was troubled. And all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Why is that? Because when a Gentile ruler was troubled and upset, everyone shook in their boots because they know there's about to be slaughter around here. Because they were irrational, they were unpredictable, but they were VIPs, man. They were impressive. They were mighty. They had thrones. They had servants. They had clout. They had power. Let it be said. Let it be written. Let it be done. They decreed. So there's all this pomp and ceremony and the power that's Rome in the West. That's the way this story is introduced. And here's a side point, preliminary point. I love the fact that it doesn't say once upon a time, you know, in a galaxy far, far away, because Christianity is not just sentimental, it's not just a fairy tale, it's not, not just, it's not a fairy tale at all. It's not a fable. This really happened. This is history. In a time when Caesar Augustus was on his throne and Quirinius was the ruler of Syria, God made good on his prophecy like we talked about last week. God's promises broke through time and space in the form of a little baby that they, they named Jesus who would come and save his people from their sins. That's a preliminary point. Christianity is historical. It's true. It's not a fable. It's not a fairy tale. This is real life. Thank God for that. And it came into a place when there were wicked and corrupt men who were rulers, and they were impressive, man. They were at the center. Everybody bowed down to them. Everyone was paying attention to Caesar, and he could do or say whatever he wanted. And you know what he said? He said, look, I want all the people in the known world which is whenever it says the whole world, that's what it means in the New Testament. The known world at that time, he said, I want everybody to come to their hometown and be numbered. It was a census. And why why would he do that? Well, it was a power move. It was a control move. It was a greed move because he wanted everybody to be taxed. If you're going to collect the taxes of every single person in your 
in your province or your jurisdiction, you need to know how many people there are and where they live, right? And how many people are in that household so you can tax them and overtax them accordingly, right? So this is like greed and power. He goes, hey, here's my decree. I want every person to go and be registered so I can tax them. And if, we, if a war gets started, even though that was a peaceful time, the Pax Romana, he, he started that. It was, he was the emperor. He was known as the emperor of peace, externally at least. He said, if a war breaks out, I want to know how many valid soldiers we have. So, behold, Caesar made a decree. He's powerful. He's impressive. He's front and center. He sits on a throne. And then that's contrasted with, if you go a little bit further down, the verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? So you got Caesar, you got Rome, and then you got Joseph married this poor, unknown, unimpressive couple from this hole-in-the-wall village called Nazareth, right? And they're going to be traveling to a little hole-in-the-wall village called Bethlehem. We talked about that prophecy in Micah 5.2. Bethlehem, you're so small, how could a a ruler of Judah possibly come out of you who's going to rule and serve. Unimpressive, right? And I hope this hits you today because this is still so true. So often we get caught up into this idea of we only measure things if they're earth-shattering, if they're impressive, if they're bright and shiny and spectacular and powerful according to the, the noisy standards that we've set here in the West, right? And often, man, that, that heaps on us depression and sadness and we think man does God does God see me I feel so very small and unimpressive and who am I in the grand scheme of things my life's unimpressive my paycheck's unimpressive my family's unimpressive if I have a family you know or my singleness is unimpressive whatever it is my job's unimpressive and we fall into that of thinking like man does God we we thank you Bree for sharing our greeting uh for those that wonder if God cares, does God see me? Does God know what's going on in my life? Or is God more interested in the big, earth-shattering, powerful VIP things going on? There was a lady, her name was Mrs. Johnson, and in March of 1955, she wrote C.S. Lewis, the Christian author and apologist, a letter. A lot of people wrote him a letter, and he wasn't able to answer all of them. But back then, man... Uh, he wrote a bunch of letters, and they've been preserved in books, the letters of C.S. Lewis, which is kind of cool. And she was a housewife, and she wrote him, and she said, man, I feel so, I feel like what I'm doing doesn't make a difference in the grand scheme of things. And this was 1955, so a lot different from today if you were a housewife, right? She said, I feel like my job is like that of Sisyphus, you know, the, the, the person in Greek mythology who was punished to the underworld for deceiving the Greek gods and he was tasked with pushing this enormous boulder up a hill only to have it roll back on him when he was done. So this is, this is what C.S. Lewis said in response to her. And man, I did not put this in my notes, so I apologize. I'm going to have to read it without falling off here. Can you guys see this? He said, a housewife's work is surely in reality the most important work in the world. Man, that's a pretty cool answer, isn't it? In a letter, wouldn't you even be encouraged to read that? It's surely the most important work in the world. What do ships, railways, mines, cars, government, etc. exist for except that people may be fed, warmed, and safe in their own homes? As Dr. Johnson said, to be happy at home is the end of all human endeavor. First, to be happy, to prepare for being happy in our own real home hereafter. He's talking about heaven. Second, in the meantime, to be happy in our houses. 
We wage war in order to have peace. We work in order to have leisure. We produce food in order to eat it. So your job is the one for which all others exist. Don't you like that? Here's Mary. Here's Joseph traveling to be registered, probably annoyed in their hearts that they have to do this, especially since she is great with child. And yet, who are we talking about thousands of years later? Who do, who do we celebrate? We don't idolize Mary. She's not our Savior. She's not co-mediatrix. She didn't redeem us at all. She called Christ in her Magnificat, the song. She said, Christ my Savior, right? But we, we honor those whom God honors. And I just love the way that this, really the whole passage, it, it goes much further than just Mary and Joseph. Because if you keep reading, uh, verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. I love this, man, because check this out. One of the most significant and miraculous events in the history of this world, outside of the resurrection, the ascension, the crucifixion, the vicarious atonement involved in that, God became a man. God became a man. A body was pre- prepared for him. And it's, it's, it's such a magnificent thing. I mean, if you were the press agent for God, and he consulted you and said, look, I'm about to do this amazing thing. I'm going to fulfill thousands of years of prophecy, and I'm going to send the Messiah to earth. And uh, how, would you, how would you display that? You would think, oh, man, we got to get the palace. We got to send memos to the palace. We got to get the temple ready. We got to have a huge crowd of people uh, gathered. It'll be VIP access only, right? You wouldn't do what God did here. And it's interesting because it's one verse. It's one... In fact, all the spectacular things in the Bible are really like one verse. Jesus was crucified outside the city on a hill. One verse. It talks about the death of Christ. Jesus was resurrected. No witnesses there. When it happened, he walked outside the tomb. That's one verse. And here it is. One, one of the most significant, miraculous, powerful events in the history of the world. And listen, man. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the end. It doesn't sound very impressive, does it? Does it? A manger? That's a feeding trough for cattle. And, and they couldn't even, there wasn't even room for them in the, in the hotel in that day. Whatever you want, motel, hotel, whatever you want to call that. No room for them there. And so the press agents, who did God end up manifesting this to? Well, check this out. And in the same region, there were shepherds. There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. I just love this, man. God went to the most outcast, marginalized, socially bottom of the rung, bottom of the ladder. I know maybe there's been some debate uh, about the shepherds. Were they really that outcast? Some of the best resources that I've read have said, yes, even though David was a shepherd, maybe that elevated shepherds in the Old Testament a little bit. But when you come to the New Testament, shepherds couldn't have a say-so in court. They, they, they weren't, were, not, were not valid witnesses. They weren't trusted. They were considered dirty because of their profession, and it was uh, 24-7. They weren't often able to go into the temple. They were considered unclean. So, yeah, they were, it was a despised profession, and socially they would have been outcast. They wouldn't have been trusted. It reminded me when Sarah and I, Right after we were married, we went to Romania, and I was so struck by all the sheep in Romania. I'd never seen anything like it. It was funny. People thought I was an idiot because we show up, and 
instantly I take out, you know, we didn't have iPhones back then, but I, I took out our little camera that we bought, our little digital camera. It was super expensive and cool. That was, I think, a wedding gift. I took that out and I started snapping pictures and all the native people in Romania are like, what are you doing? I'm like, these shepherds are incredible. And they're like, dude, they're everywhere. <laughs> That'd be like showing up at a field and taking a picture of a weed, you know? And they were like, what is so spectacular? I'm like, I, I just, it's a, just amazing. We don't have shepherds where I'm from. And they were like, this, and they would kind of hold their nose. And like, not only are they everywhere, it's like, why would you take a picture of that? It'd be like taking a picture in their mind of like a homeless person on this. I'm just being honest, being real here. Um, shepherds were everywhere, but they were despised. And Sarah and I also noticed when we went to Romania, uh, Krista, you went, I think you went with us, yeah. Uh, we began to hear about these gypsies, and, and I know that, that gypsies, man, they, they appear in stories, and we probably get the wrong idea, but in Romania, the Romanians did not like the gypsies at all. They despised them, they thought that they stole, they thought that they were deceptive, and you can see where some of that came from in Romania, there would be some beggars, and you could watch them, and... They would talk you out of whatever you had, man, and then they would go back to report to their family, and the, and the Romanians would say, you see, gypsies, that's what they do. They lie, they cheat, they steal, and they had villages, and we were doing outreach there with the Romanian Christian church, and we were thinking, man, let's go to a gypsy village, and they would say, no, we are not going there. They will rob from us. They will steal from us. It's not safe, and I thought, man, years as I've studied this, how shepherds were despised and how... Bethlehem was kind of despised. I thought, you know what, man? If Jesus were born today, and I'm just hypothetically thinking here. If Jesus were born today in Romania, where do you think? I, I, I got a feeling I know which village he would be born in, right? And who the witnesses would be. I think he would be born in a gypsy village, and there would be shepherds over there checking it out when all the VIP movers and shakers in Romania were left out. Maybe that's a terrible illustration, and I hope it doesn't sound like I'm throwing shade on Romania. I love, I love, we've been back there several times, but it just puts me in mind of this, man. What we often despise and marginalize and put in the peripheral, God brings front, front center. His whole ministry was like that. His whole ministry, look, he eats with sinners. He dines with prostitutes. Who is this man? He would choose people that were foreigners. He would tell, he would tell parables where the despised foreigner was like the hero of the story, the good what? Samaritan, not the good Israelite. Ouch! Knife in the heart to an Israelite, to a Jew, right? Jesus always did that. He, he, he elevated women and children, the things that were unimpressive in that day and culture and age. And Christmas, to me, is just a reminder of that. And all the Bible is like that. In fact, Luke really loves to contrast things. You read the entire story, he's talking about Simeon, the old man at the temple, you know, God gave him the blessing of seeing the promised Messiah before he died. And then there's Anna, the prophetess. She got the prophesy. There's the shepherds. There's, it's all the way through. It's really interesting. And then you see a little bit further in the epistles, Eunice and Lois, 2 Timothy 1.5, the mother and the grandmother of Timothy. You know, they weren't showing up wowing crowds or doing book signings, but the Bible says they poured into Timothy. They did the hard work that often goes unnoticed and escaped for those of us that, that do that at home, right? Unimpressive, man. Unimpressive. The announcement of the Messiah's birth was made privately at midnight to shepherds. Why? Because this is good news of great joy to all people. And even in the very manner in which God declared that announcement, 
was a truth about how the rest of Christ's ministry would be, right? She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the end. I love that. Contrast. Are you struck by the contrast here? You know, 1 Corinthians 1, it says, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to, to shame the things which are strong. I love that. God chose shepherds, not just to behold Christ first, but also to broadcast the good news. He chose shepherds. And let's just stop and think about that for a minute, because I think so often, and man, I want to, Lord, help me to apply this the right way. So often, the, the strength and the power of the message gets lost in the medium, right? That's so true so often in ministry. You've got to have a celebrity pastor to say something before it ever makes its rounds and impacts people, right? Or you've got to have somebody with a degree behind their name to say something or somebody that's well-known. I was reading something on my computer the other, the other night and uh, had it on the table. The family was over there, and I wasn't looking, you know, reading anything or looking at anything that I shouldn't have. I was reading an article, and uh, there's ads on certain websites, and there was an ad, and, and it was a... a kind of a curvy woman, and, I, and honestly, I wasn't paying, paying attention to it. And one of my kids walked up, six years old, and he said, Daddy, quit looking at that, or Daddy, don't look at that. And I was struck by it, and I looked, I'm like, oh, you know, that's not, that's not a good ad. And he grabbed me, and he said, Daddy, don't look at that. And I thought, man, God often does that, doesn't he? Just, he just gives you, gives you a reminder, and you think, I mean, I could have said, hey, hey, go away. Get away from me. Daddy's studying right now. But, hey, how do I know that that wasn't a reminder of another temptation that will come that would be more powerful and God would bring to mind something that my son said? Has that ever happened to you? Strange messengers that God sends. And maybe it's not a kid. Listen, maybe it's somebody that cares enough about you to bring a word of challenge and conviction and maybe even, dare I say, confrontation to you when you're headed down a dangerous path and God sends somebody that's really unimpressive. And your temptation will be to challenge them or defend yourself or be dismissive. Because who in the world are they? I mean, who, do you, who in the world do you think you are to come and challenge me or to question me? But so often God does that, doesn't he? He did it all throughout the Bible. Remember the story of, of Balaam and the donkey? I know maybe it's been overused, but do you know what God used to rebuke a wayward prophet that was about to do something that was very dangerous, destructive, and disobedient? You know, he opened the mouth of his jackass to warn him. He did. God's done that. He can do it again. Here I am up here preaching, right? God uses often unimpress unimpressive messengers to get our attention because that's the way God operates. He's going to send peace and salvation to the world. He sends a baby. Oh, that's cute, a baby, but are, will you listen to that baby? Will you listen to that message? It's amazing, man, the, the shepherds got an angelic host. It's, it's so interesting. I've talked about this before. I don't want to beat a dead horse here. Oh, goodness, I've got to reconnect here. I don't want to uh, kick a dead horse. We've said this in the past. That whole passage is just interesting to me. God had to get the shepherds' attention. And so it says, behold, an angelic host or an angel stood before them. That word in Greek, it means to stand immediately right beside somebody. Now, I've, I've told you this before. I'm a weird dude, man. I, I like my personal space. I don't like people standing 
and I do this selfishly every year, just, <laughs> just to remind you, I don't like people standing right next to me, man. It messes. I don't know why. I'm not afraid. I just like my personal space. Do you? I don't like to smell people's breath and their body odor or their deodorant or whatever it is. And there's some people, man, <laughs> I'm a weirdo, guys. There's some people, and they're just so used to that. that, that have you ever you talked to somebody, and you're like, oh, hey, how's it going? And, man, they're like, it's going good. How are you doing? And, <laughs> and before you know it, you're like doing the pastoral dance. Like, man, get away from me. <laughs> but imagine that, okay? You're a shepherd. It's in the middle of the night. It's cold. It's dark. Nothing like this has ever happened. And then all of a sudden, boom, <laughs> Hallelujah, there's an angel. And this is not like a fat little chubby Hallmark angel playing a harp, guys. When angels appeared, people fell out flat like they were dead because angels were terrible in their appearance, or you could say terrific or awesome. People will either worship them or say, God, kill me, I'm dead, I've seen something divine. But instantly, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this angel stood beside them, and it says, you know, I like the, the King James Version here, they were sore afraid. It's the word in Greek is megaphobia. It's actually a, a turn in Greek. It says they were feared with a great fearing. They were filled. They were terrified. God had to get their attention, and then he had to relieve their fear. And he said, hey, don't be afraid, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy for all people. And he's saying, hey, I had to get your attention because this message is important. You've got to get it right, and I'm going to send you. I want you to confirm this message. Here's a little prophecy. You're going to find a child wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger. Now go. And they went, and it says they found this thing. In the, and I'm sorry, geeking out here. When they, when they told about the thing that they had, had seen and heard, the word is, is uh, rhema. In Greek, it means word. When, when they went and, and discovered the thing, they told Angel and Joseph the word that they had heard. Because it was confirmed. They found it just exactly like God said they would. So now there's these chosen, uh, legit, set-apart messengers. So they got angels. And certain people in the New Testament got apostolic visions and revelation and dreams. Uh, but we get a book, don't we? We get a book. And it's like, oh, man, I want, I want an angel to appear. We got a book. And, and look, hey, maybe an angel will appear. I don't know. You've got to be careful with angels because Satan appears as an angel of light, right? And you've got to test the spirits, and that's another sermon for another day. But so often, if something's not spectacular and impressive, it's easy to be dismissive. If you were alive in this day and you lived in that region and you heard this message, more than likely the messenger would have been a shepherd. And I just wonder if you would have said, liar. Can't, can't believe half the stuff. You really believe an angel came to them and told them that? But you know what? The Bible says in this passage, they were faithful. They went out declaring it everywhere, exactly what had been shown them and told them. And, and to me, again, this is a contrast. This is part of the hidden, missing message of Christmas is don't let the medium determine whether or not you pay attention to the message or not, okay? Because so often God sends unimpressive messengers to carry out his will. He just does. That's just the way God works. His ways are not our works. This is the upside-down kingdom anyway, friends, right? The first or last, if you want to live, die. <laughs> if you want to rule and be important, serve. That's just the upside-down kingdom, and I love that. It's like unlike any other religion or any other philosophy or any other system in the world. That's how God operates. 
uses unimpressive, unspect- unspectacular things. And check this out a little bit further down in, in uh, this chapter. It says, verse 15, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Don't you love that? They obeyed. I have a theory. This is just a theory, okay? This is thus saith Tommy, not thus saith the Lord. Um, But it seems in Luke's gospel account, his ordered account of all that happened, he is selecting people that were very unimpressive, but were also very faithful, right? Annas, Simeon, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, Joseph, and then their shepherds. I don't think these were just pagan shepherds, man, minding their own business on the side of the hill. I think these shepherds had been to Sunday school. This, again, this is a theory I have, and I think they were faithful to God, and that's why it's no surprise when the angels appear and they give this heavenly message to them These shepherds were obedient. They had to make arrangements. They talked amongst themselves and they said, hey, let's get going. Let's go see. Let's go obey this heavenly vision that we've given. And so they went with haste, verse 16, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And check this out. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. So this is interesting to me, man. I, this is so instructive. So these shepherds went everywhere sharing this message, and it says, and people wondered. The word is, is thalmazo, and it means, it can mean to wonder. It can mean to be amazed. It can mean to be struck, like, oh, wow. It's, the best definition I can think of is curiosity at its highest, okay? Now, Lord, help me with this. Sometimes we hear things. And we had that reaction, wow, that's cool, that's awesome, just like the prophecies last week. You remember the little illustration I got, and I totally stole it from Josh McDowell, more than a carpenter? Uh, If you just take eight prophecies concerning the first advent, the arrival of Jesus, just eight prophecies being fulfilled by one person that was made hundreds of years, the prophecies made hundreds of years, the odds of that happening through one person would be the same as if you fill the state of Texas I'm going to get it right this time, Mark. Where are you at? If you fill the state of De- Texas with coins, <laughs> okay, big coins, uh, and it's two feet thick, and you mark one with a red X, and you blindfold a man, and you say, hey, go take as long as you want, wander all throughout the state of Texas, pick one coin. The odds of one person fulfilling eight prophecies is the same odds that that blindfolded man will pick that marked coin out of two feet deep coins in Texas. That's crazy, isn't it? You can tell people that and say, now... What do you think? And they're like, oh, wow, dang, interesting. And you're like, okay, so are you willing to rethink your position on Christianity now and consider Jesus as Lord? No, but that's cool. That's super cool, though. Wow, interesting, amazing. That's, that's what this story is pointing out. Most of the people that the shepherd shared that, hey, we saw angels, we heard this message, we found a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, all these prophecies are coming true, people wondered at it. They wondered, wow, that's interesting. But none of them went to the manger to check out the baby, did they? It's like, wow, that's amazing. Are you amazed? Yes. Amazing enough to come check it out? No, I'm busy, dude. I got stuff to do. I got stuff to do. Things haven't changed, have they? By the way, that same word, wonder, thalmazo, it was used in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus stood up as a, as a, the first time in ministry, he stood up at the, in the synagogue and, and he read 
Isaiah chapter 60 and 61, and it said, And the eyes of everyone were fixed on him, and they all marveled at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. Same word, marveled. They thalmazoed him. And then five minutes later, they tried to throw him off a cliff. Do you remember that? Seriously, true story. It's interesting. They thought, oh, cool, that's interesting, it's Jesus. And then he started preaching, and they gnashed their teeth, and they, and they rushed him and tried to throw him off a cliff because they were angry at him. But it says, Mary pondered these things in her heart, and she treasured them. You know what it means to ponder? It means to make room for something that you previously didn't have room for. To make room for something in your heart. I wonder, man, how many people, the Christian message, the gospel message, the hidden missing message of Christmas, how often we just don't make room for that, man. We just don't have time. It's 2022. Things are happening. We've been told that we're competing with goldfish for attention span. Do you remember that? You, you know how long goldfish, to have, if you go in front of a goldfish tank and you tap on it and do, I don't know what you do to keep a goldfish attention, you know how long you got? Nine seconds. Do you know how you long with how long you have with a typical human? Eight. It's not a lie, guys. Research backs this up. Isn't that crazy? Eight seconds. And yet, it says, Mary, it, there's a contrast here. All the people heard the message, and they wondered. And it says, but. It's contrasting it. But Mary pondered these things, and she treasured them in her heart. She thought on them. It means, it means to tease something out to its conclusion. To put, she started to put things together. Oh, man. There's, so there's... There's this, and I remember the angel came and told me this, and the shepherds are coming and telling me this. And man, when you, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, when a man or a woman begins to think again, that's when supernatural things happen, right? Miracles happen. That's what the word repentance means. It means to change your mind. That leads to a change of heart. That leads to a changed life. So, pondering means to let something affect you deeply, and that's what Mary did. And we're running out of time here. It's okay. Take heed how you hear. The medium is not the message. Point number two, this is going to be super quick. Some of you look afraid. It's okay. <laughs> You're laughing, but you know it's true. Point number two, peace comes from beyond. Peace comes from beyond. This, this heavenly host, what did they say? Peace on earth. Peace on earth, goodwill among those with whom God's favor rests, or among those with whom God is pleased. I remember years ago, there was an article in the New York Times, and it said this, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph, and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? That's the, is that the meaning of Christmas? Let me ask you a question. I want you to think about that. Is that the meaning of Christmas? We will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Man, I love that, don't you? The only thing is, it's just a flat-out lie. <laughs> flat-out lie. We will be able. I wonder, are we able to put together a world of unity and peace? It's 2022, man. We've had a long time. How are we doing with that? You remember Dr. Phil used to say that if you were into watching Dr. Phil, he would always like lean forward and scratch his bald head. I can say that. I got one. And he would, they would say, oh, they would defend their, their dumb decisions in life that had led them to a point of crises. And he would say, how's that working for you? <laughs> right? We are able to put together a world of unity and beauty and peace and love. And it's awesome. And it's going to triumph. And I just can't really contain myself. How's that working for you? You've had a few thousand years to do that. You know what? I, it's interesting. Galatians. Do we, have, do we have that passage in Galatians here that we can put up? Here it is. Galatians 4. Check this out. This is a Christmas passage in Galatians, and you didn't even know that. 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption of sons. When the fullness of time had come. Do you know uh, Advent is about waiting? We're waiting in hope and excitement and anticipation of the arrival of someone noteworthy. You know, God waited too. He waited for a long time. He made the promise all the way back in Genesis 3. He's going to send a serpent-crushing king, right? And he waited for how long? Thousands, thousands, thousands of years, right? Depending on your views on that, 6,000 years since the beginning of the world or whatever. He waited thousands of years, and we had all kinds of VIPs that came and went during that time. Do you know how many kings and queens and princes and VIPs and Caesars and philosophers and psychologists and teachers and religious leaders, do you know how many people have came and gone? I mean, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians and he said, hey, where are all the scribes? Where are all the wise men? Where are all the movers and shakers and astrologers? Where are they at? Where are all the people that were going to solve the problems? Because they've came and went, and look, the world is worse off than it ever was. It's blacker and darker, more filled with hate, violence, crime, idolatry, sexual immorality, war, murder. This angel saying, hey, God is ready to send peace, and he's going to do it in spite of your best efforts, not because or through your best efforts. Because, look, we can't create peace, God. You know, you know why we can't create peace? Because we don't even have it in our hearts, do we? I read last week the story of a 10-year-old boy who, I'm, and I'm sorry, this is, this is not, I just want you guys to know how, how relevant the Bible is. 10-year-old kid shot and killed his mother, point-blank range, in the face. Do you know why? 10 years old now. 10 years, you know why? Because she canceled his Amazon order of an Oculus, which is like a, uh, uh, somebody help me here, virtual reality. Who said that? You gamer. (laughs) No, it's a virtual reality headset, right? And he got his mom's, clever kid, I guess, in some ways, knew his mom's Amazon patent, knew how, had the wherewithal to order that. He ordered it, and she found out about it, and she canceled his order. So he found the key to a lockbox in their house that had a pistol in it, and he got it, and he walked downstairs in the basement. She was doing laundry, and he started waving it, and she said, this is his account. She said, what are you doing with that? And he walked right up to her face and shot her and killed her. And he's being tried as a 60-year-old, excuse me, he's being tried as an adult, and he's facing up to 60 years in prison. Here's the really sad part. When he, confronted, when he was confronted with his grandmother the next day who was crying, he said, I'm, basically, I'm sorry that I killed your daughter, um, but I, I went online and reordered the Amazon package. Has it arrived yet? Ten years old. Why do I bring that up? Because it's just a reminder that peace is so elusive today, isn't it? It's so elusive. Here's another story for you. Did you know last week I had so many people reach out to me. Is everything okay at DHS, which is this high school? Is everything okay? I'm like, yeah, why? They're like, because. You didn't hear? There was like an active shooter. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. What? They said, yeah, it was on the news, active shooter at DHS. Well, I met with the principal last week, and I said, bro, what the heck? And he said, it was a hoax. It was a hoax. He said, and I didn't know. He said, I'm, I, I'm here, and finally get a phone call like, hey, they're on the way. And I said, who's on the way? And they said, first responders, they're coming because of the 911 call. What 911 call? And he said, the next thing he knows, 50 first responder cars whirled into this parking lot decked out in SWAT gear, helmets, you know, AKs, ARs, 
Why? Because somebody thought it would be funny. Somebody thought it would be funny to call 911 and say, hey, there's an active shooter, shots fired, DHS campus, Hallam Boulevard, 100 Wolfpack Run. You better get out there right away. And they used a burner phone that you can't trace. Oh, that's so funny, isn't it? That's so funny unless you're a parent of a kid here or unless you are a kid here or unless you're a faculty member here. Then it's not so funny, is it? Why would somebody do that, though? Let me ask you that question. Why? I mean, we're going through the book of Romans, and we've already read this arrest warrant, haven't we? There is no fear before their, before their eyes. The way of peace they had not known is what the Bible says, right? Their feet are swift to run to evil. Their hands are swift to shed blood. There is no peace here. We do not create peace. We are not able to do that. We are unwilling to do that. It takes God to send peace objectively outside of us. Caesar couldn't do it. He was known as the emperor of peace, and maybe there was no war during his reign, but look, can you, can you silence the passions and the hate and the anger, some of the things that Aaron was talking about? We can't do that. We're not able to do that. Only God can do that. He did it not by sending a system or a philosophy. He did it by sending his son, the prince of peace. Peace comes from beyond. We are not able and we are not willing to create peace here. Certainly not able to do that. Things are worse than they've ever been. A pagan Roman philosopher of the first century wrote this, while the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than ever for outward peace. That's what the Bible teaches. Well, hey, last, last uh, point here, and it's going to be a super fast point, okay? Jesus is Lord over all. He's Lord over all. That's what the angelic declaration was, and that's what the, the shepherd message went out, declaring Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. You know, Caesar, his birth was supposed to be gospel, good news. That behold, God's son, Caesar Augustus, is going to bring peace, and he's the Lord. That's what kurios meant. That was a Greek term, and it meant Caesar. It meant he's Lord, he's the leader, he's the ruler. But in contrast to that, uh, the angelic declaration was that, no, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. And look, usually that's bad news for humans, isn't it? That's, oh, great. That's last thing we need, another ruler. How's our track record with rulers? But this ruler's different. <laughs> He's the ruler who came to serve. He's the ruler who will actually give his life. Tell me, tell me this. Which Caesar ever said, come unto me, all you who are... <laughs> heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your souls. Any Caesar ever say that? Which Caesar ever stepped down from his lofty throne and took the crown off of his head and said, I will become one of my people? I mean, check this out. We have a children's Bible. Sarah was reading it the other night. I said, man, this is my favorite, this is my favorite one because of just one statement it says in the Christmas story. And it's from Luke chapter 2, and it says, look, while Caesar was showing how great he was by numbering his people, God was showing how great he was by becoming one of his people. Boom, mic drop. Isn't that awesome? It's like all the Caesars, all the Curiouses of the Lord, they have a different view of lordship and greatness. Jesus came and he said, you've never seen a ruler like me. Not only will I become one of my people, I'll trade places with my enemies. I'll become the vicarious lamb slaughtered on their behalf. That's why this is, Good news of great joy for all people. And here's my final illustration. This is, this is, this is kind of a, uh, 
um, nostalgic thing for me. I grew up watching this on TV. We didn't have, obviously, YouTube. And if you wanted to see this before VCRs came out, you had to sit your little rear end down in front of the TV on Channel 8 on a clear night when it wasn't staticky. Uh, right, Mom? My mom's watching. From We always watch this every year. And this is the last year they're showing it on cable. Uh, probably for a lot of reasons. Apple TV is taking over the control of this. But we watch this every year. And look, talking about hidden messages, I never noticed this until I read an article about it. You know, the whole thing is about figuring out what's Christmas all about. And Charles Schultz, how do you say his last name? Thank you. I can't say it. I'm from Arkansas. Too hard for me. Uh, at one time in his life, he embraced Christianity. From what I've understood, he, you know, had a troubled life and maybe had different convictions at the end. But when he wrote that story uh, and they broadcast that, it's interesting, man, because Charlie Brown's like, good grief, what's Christmas even mean? And, you know, Linus walks up. You guys remember Linus, right? Charlie Brown's best friend. What's that that he has beside him there? Oh, the old security blanket, right? He took that thing with him everywhere he went. Inseparable. That that represented security, but you find out, if you know much about peanuts, it actually represented insecurity, right? And we can laugh, and, oh, that's so cute, Charlie Brown. I think Charles, which, like most cartoon strip artists, uh, they're on to something, right? They're kind of on to something. All those characters represent the majority of humanity, and Linus probably, probably in some way represents all of us. We all got our insecurity, and we all got something that we cling to to replace it. And it's like, man, if I only, as long as I have this, I'll be okay. I'll get through it. As long as I have this thing, whatever it is, beauty, money, friends, power, family, notoriety, popularity, whatever it is, and it's usually something that can get taken away from us and that ultimately will get taken away from us sooner or later, right? Get ripped right out from under us. Well, there is a place in this, in this uh, Charlie Brown special where Linus walks up on the stage rehearsing a Christmas pageant for their school and their community, and Charlie Brown goes, good grief, I'm a failure at everything I do. What's Christmas even about? And, you know, Linus goes, I'll tell you what Christmas is about, Charlie Brown. And he goes, lights. And he gets, he doesn't get a Bible, he's memorized it. It's, it's, it's the part of this chapter 2, verses 8 and following. And he reads it out loud. And look, it's really crazy because when he gets to the part where the angels say, fear not. How many people, how many people knew about this? Do you know what he does? Boom, he drops his security blanket. Right at the, you, you can go Google it later, not right now, okay? You can go find a YouTube channel and you can watch it. When he says, fear not, he drops his blanket. Boom, to the ground. It's a powerful moment, man. It's a powerful moment. It's a, I, I get teary-eyed almost just thinking about it. Because that's really the, the message of Christmas is Jesus is Lord, right? He's Lord, so you don't have anything to hide because he's a good Lord. He's going to become sacrificial lamb that's going to justify you from your, you don't have anything to hide, you don't have anything to prove, you don't have anything to fear anymore. Jesus is Lord, you can let go of whatever false Savior you've been clinging to your whole life. You can let go of that and you can cling to the real, true, living Savior, Jesus Christ. And maybe that's the message we most need to hear this morning, and that's the message that I'll leave you with. What, what security blanket are you clinging to? You can turn loose of it. That's the meaning of Christmas. That's the message of Christmas. Amen? Because Christ is Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your love, for your power, for your tenderness, for the peace that you usher in that we so desperately need, but we can't create and establish and even preserve on our own. We have pockets or moments of it or glimpses of it, but until we know 
Jesus Christ, true peace is elusive, Lord. We, we can't wrap our minds around it. We can't find it. We can't chase it down. Thank you that you have introduced peace into our life through this baby who would be born, who would grow up to become a man, who would be escorted outside the city gate and would be hung up on a cross, Lord, to atone for our sins. And it wasn't the nails that kept him there. It was his love. That was his choice to die in our place. He laid it. Nobody took it from him. He did it willingly. He did it sacrificially. He did it joyfully. May Christmas be a reminder. That's what the Lord did on our behalf. And are we following him today? Have we laid down whatever security blanket we're clinging to? Are we pondering this message? Are we treasuring this message in our heart? Are we living whatever unimpressive life that you've called us to live, knowing that you're with us, Lord, and that you value the unimpressive? You always have. Thank you for these truths, Lord. We love you. We praise you. I pray if anybody is here today that doesn't know the peace, the security, the forgiveness, the love and the stability that Jesus Christ brings, I pray that today would be the day, Lord. They would draw near to you. You would draw near them. You would call them to yourself. I pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.